We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. simple. We just want to sell the players we don't like and keep all the ones we love. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. That's right. We just want to, you know, keep all the players we love and sell all the players we don't like. And that should be very easy. And in fact, we should get big fees for the players we don't like or don't need. And, um, you know, we shouldn't get anybody trying to take the players we like. I think that's only fair. That's what we want to do. Not sure it works that way, but we'll find out. Look, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk little uh, outgoings and potentially incomings. Obviously, Gabriel Magaliash comes up in the conversation and more. We're also going to talk about the rise of Mikel Arteta's arsenal and, and how he got through um, some of the down periods and some of the backstories that you may not know. We're going to be talking to Charles Watts of Charles Watts.Football, of Charles Watts' YouTube channel, of Charles underscore Watts at Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it these days, um, and, and just someone who's been covering Arsenal uh, as a journalist for many, many years. Now, uh, after that, Clive is going to come on and we're going to do a Fulham preview. If you're a patron, you heard the Charles Watts interview. You haven't heard the Clive uh, discussion yet. So that'll be new. If you're not a patron, this will all be new to you. But what you missed out on yesterday is a very, very fun power rankings episode where we went through teams like uh, Newcastle, Chelsea, United, Spurs, Liverpool, City, even Brighton, not Arsenal. We're getting uh, our head around how those other clubs are performing and how they're situated, how they're positioned to challenge for whatever uh, pathetic position they think they can challenge for. And it was sort of like a an ersatz schadenfreude episode in a way an adjunct schadenfreude episode so i i think you would like that if you want to check it out if not no big deal you're here you're going to hear charles watts which is brilliant um you're going to hear clive talk about fulham uh well mostly about us beating fulham which is also brilliant uh and we just love you for being here so i'm going to turn it over to myself and charles watts um and then to clive so here we go hello charles great to see you hey Leah. how are you doing mate all good yeah doing great um i can't complain i mean i can complain a little it's, it's funny i live in a place that is renowned for being freezing cold. And we are currently in an excessive heat warning where we're advised not to go outside. So I feel like if you get the one, you shouldn't get the other. But, you know, that's just, I guess, how it works on the planet these days. <laughs> but do you like the other, Elliot? Do you, are you tempted to go outside? Uh, I mean, I am more tempted to go outside in this than in what's coming. 
in a few months. Let's put it that way. Um, but who needs to go outside when there's so much great uh, Arsenal football news to, to digest? Um, and that is what we're here to talk about. I'm, for the people watching on on YouTube and things like that on video, I'm going to wave this around. A beautiful book that has arrived at my home. It says here on the book, Revolution, The Rise of Arteta's Arsenal. It has your name at the bottom, Charles Watts. It must be a really proud moment for you to see this, Charles. And I just want to congratulate you. And before we dive into the book and, of course, into transfers for hashtag clicks, um, do you want to just tell people quickly where they can get it? Um, I know you're doing a, a signing event at the Tollington. That's coming up. But anything else you want to tell people about uh, being able to get the book? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, you can find the link to pre-order on my uh, Twitter or X, whatever you call it nowadays. I keep tw- posting that out. It's uh, links direct to the publisher's web webpage for it, which is HarperCollins. And on there, you can either order it direct or it's listed, you know, your Amazons, your Waterstones, your WH Smith, all that lot where you can pre-order it from as well. So you can find anywhere you want there to to pre-order it uh, ahead of the launch on August 13th, and th- uh, 31st, sorry. And then, of course, you can come down, like you said, to the Tollington on the 31st. Uh, for the big launch event there where you're going to have Stoke Newington Bookshop going to be there selling the book. I'm going to be there signing. And then from sort of 7, 7.15 p.m. onwards, myself, Gunner Blog, a.k.a. James McNicholas, and uh, Sam Dean of The Telegraph are going to host a sort of panel event Q&A where we're going to talk all things Arsenal, talk about start to season, talk about Mikel Arteta, and, of course, open the floor to questions from hopefully an audience if there is one which fingers crossed there will be so yeah get yourself down to the Tollington on the 31st it should be a really fun night of uh, of Arsenal chat that's fantastic well I'm sure there will be a great audience there and hopefully uh, if there's any self-respecting Arsenal fans there'll be some Jaeger bombs poured as well um look I think what you've done is uh is brilliant and you know I've not written a book myself because you know what would the not being good at writing stuff that would have been a mistake I'm just curious, what what are some of the things about this process that jump out to you? And we will get to the general Arsenal news and things like that. But but I mean, this is this is really the topic at Arsenal that matters more than anything else: the rise of Mikel Arteta's Arsenal. So, what are some of the things about the process of writing this that maybe stood out to you as an exceptional experience, or a surprise, or little tidbits from the book that that wet people's appetite for that, but also give them an insight into maybe some of the things you got to experience that that you weren't expecting. Mm-hmm. Well, look, it's my first book, so I went into this with a big sort of blank page in front of me. I didn't know what to expect. It was out of curiosity for other authors. Did, did they go into it with the page written already? Because that, I feel that that would make the process much easier rather than the blank page. If the page is already written, then then I I could probably do it. But I admire <laughs> you for starting from from a blank page. Sorry, I, I couldn't help myself. Go on. It was um yeah it was it was just. <laughs> I think I got approached. I got approached around sort of February by the publishers Harper Collins, who were interested in doing this book, and they said to me, you know, basically, are, are you interested in writing it? And I thought about it for a while, and it's always been an ambition of mine to do this since I first got into the industry. Even before I first got into the industry, the thought of having a book with my name on it was just always been uh, just a huge ambition of mine. And then to be able to do it about about a man who intrigues me just so much who's such an interesting character was great and to also do it about the football club that I love and has played such a huge part in my life for the last 40 odd years it was just an opportunity I couldn't turn down so but I did go into it thinking what the hell am I doing here (laughs) I've never done it before I'm doing it on top of my job I was working a goal then we're in the title race got two young kids and it was yeah uh, at one point it's like what 
the hell have I done? <laughs> <laughs> How am I going to write 75,000 words on top of it? You're going to find a quiet else? room to write 75,000 words. It, this yeah. house is so, this is like the only remotely tidy bit of this house is this <laughs> tiny corner. Um, it's just a chaos. And so, yeah, I think after about two days, I thought, what have I done? I've bitten off far too much I can chew here. But I slowly got into it. I wanted to start the whole process because it's about Mikel, obviously, and about the rise, as the title says. But I wanted to do it about more than just that. I wanted to sort of get into Mikel, the player um, at Arsenal, the, the time he spent at Arsenal, how he signed, and then sort of build the picture of him as a coach and the influence he has in his whole game. You know, going back to Johan Cruyff with Barcelona, who Mikel absolutely holds in such high regards. Like he's, he was asked, who's your who's your most influential footballer, your favourite footballer of all time who made such an impact? He's like, it wasn't a footballer. It was a manager. It was Johan Cruyff. And mm. so sort of delving into that and, of course, going into his time at Manchester City with Pep, what he learned, and then starting the Arsenal story. So um, I really thought that was an important way to, to start off the book and because I think that kind of sets the scene about him and how he became the kind of coach and the man that he is now that we see at Arsenal. Um, and I, I, I really enjoyed that part of writing it as well. I spoke to people like Bakai, um, Bakai, Bakari Sanya, who mm. was a teammate and a great friend of Mikel at Arsenal, but then was also a player at Manchester City when Mikel joined the coaching staff. And it was really interesting talking to Bakari about that, about you know, first what he was like at Arsenal as a captain and as a player. And he told me some really interesting bits. Like he'd go around with Santi Cazorla and Andre Santos and they'd go around regularly to watch football at Mikel's house. Mikel had a barbecue and... Bakri's like strolling in and open the door and all he's looking for is food. And before he said, even said hello, Mikel's going, what formation are Barca going to play tonight? You know, how are they going to set up? <laughs> Bakri's like, oh, I literally just want a burger. <laughs> I haven't got through mm. the door yet. And you're talking tactics and formations with me. And, you know, it's just really interesting insights like that into Mikel, the, the man, and, you know, how everyone knew at that point he was going to go on and have this career in the game as a, as a coach and a manager. It was just starting the obvious to everyone and I really enjoyed writing that part of it before we got to this journey that we've all been on for the last you know four mm. years since 2019 and uh, so I thought that was an important part and then of course from 2019 onwards it's the books about the journey like I said the highs the lows the big decisions that Mikel's had to make and he's had to make a lot the ruthlessness of him as a man as an a man as a manager um, and then this wild journey of certainly of the last sort of 18 months or so where it's just the, up, the upward tra- trajectory has been pretty incredible. And you know, it was a lot of fun to do. It was it was a lot of fun. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know if you've ever run a marathon or a half marathon. Is that anything you've ever done before? I have run a distance that is somewhat less than that. <laughs> right. <laughs> but no, not half marathon, I've, marathon, I've marathon run, 10K. I've run one half marathon in my life. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting to the finishing line and distinctly thinking – I'm never doing that again. <laughs> and when I, when I finished the book, basically that was straight in my head was that exact feeling. It was like, yeah, that was great, but I'm certainly going to, I might not I never say never, but I'm, I'm going to give myself a bit of a break before I get into that again. It was, it was yeah. a lot of fun. But it was very, very demanding. Yeah. Those, the exhilaration you get after putting yourself through something, trying. Um, yeah. I, I've had that feeling. It's like when you leave a churrascaria, but like uh, I would say <laughs> when you, when you went through this process, one thing that I'm I'm sort of curious about, um, and we won't spend too much time on this because I want people to read the book. And by the way, get the book. I mean, it is absolutely fantastic and worth the read. And I think insight into 
the man who we are putting our hopes and dreams into right now. And, and at the start of the season, I think it makes for fascinating context. But you mentioned the lows, and there were lows. As you had to revisit that period, did it strike you that it is pretty unique and remarkable that the club stud, uh, stuck by him? Or was it just so obvious what he would be that it wasn't even a, a challenge? Because I remember at the time thinking, I couldn't think of another example of a manager hitting such a low at a big club and coming out the other side of it successful. I think that is very rare. And we've seen at other clubs that they've not been willing to persist with managers. And by and large, you could argue it was the right choice not to persist with managers. They've had some some pretty poor ones. But now as a result, you have some clubs that are in a bit of a loop of just hiring and firing, um, you know, in, in and out the revolving door. How do you, how did you experience looking back on the on the difficult period and the decision, if it even was a decision, for the club to stick with him and how he the character and fortitude he showed to come through that to be what he is now? Yeah, it was a really interesting part of the book actually going back to that because I mean it wasn't so, that long ago, but it feels like it, you know, that that period. And I mean, there was no decision as far as I'm aware, and I talk about that in the book. The club were absolutely adamant, even in those dark days, that he was still the right man. And and I I kind of throw that back to, I compare that to Emery where, you know, I was there for the Emery era and I, it, it was so, and again, I talk about this in the book, it was so obvious that that was, that had broken down and that there was a change that had to take place. And I talk about a day I was at the training ground just before Emery got sacked. It was two days before he got sacked and it was in the build up to the Frankfurt game, which was of course his final game and being there and watching training and seeing just the complete, he was just on his own. Players were nowhere near him. There was no relationship. It, it just it was so obvious he was a dead man walking from yeah. from being there. And and then with Mikel, even in those dark days, and I go back to you know I don't even, I don't really consider those first three games of the of last season or sorry two seasons ago as the dark day. I, th- I go back to the season before that that run up to Christmas when oh I totally agree by the yeah. way yeah and yeah, when, yeah yeah I, the Everton game is the one that stands out just before Christmas when they lost at Goodison Park. And I remember I was driving back from Goodison in, it was like December 19th or something. We're in the height of the pandemic. London had just been plunged into the zone four or whatever it was at that point mm. of um, the pandemic. And I was listening on the radio and and I was just thinking, you know, he, he could go, he couldn't have any complaints if he went here. And that was, that for me was the sort of the darkest point of Mikel Arteta's reign. That was the... From then on, you know, obviously Boxing Day, he brought in the youngsters, they beat Chelsea, and we sort of sort started to see the new Luke Arsenal emerge from that. And um, but I never got the impression from speaking to people at Arsenal that he was going to go around then. They were always really staunch in his support, even though what was happening, they all believed in the long-term project. They all knew that really difficult decisions had to be made. They knew there was going to be difficult times because of that, but they all believed that he was the right man and the players more importantly believed. And from being around the squad, speaking to people, and I have this all in the book, you, I never once felt or got the impression that the players had remotely, you know, down tools or anything. They all still, a few of them didn't because they weren't playing, but most of them, the majority, all believed in him. And that's why, mm. you know, Arsenal never felt like they were going to make a change because they still backed him and the owners backed him, the players backed him. And that was the difference between him and Emery. It was clear with Emery, it was over. You've never, even in the dark points of Mikel, you never got to that point with him. Yeah. Yeah. I think w- one fascinating thing about the low ebb, and I agree with you, by the way, <clears throat> the three games start to the season before last, to me, 
just made sense. We hadn't gotten our, our business done, which is not Mikel's fault. We had COVID absences and we had two of the best teams in the league at the time um, to play one away, one at home in Manchester City. I just, I felt that that was a setup for failure going into it. The one you referenced, I I really think an interesting dynamic of that period is that there were no fans in the stands. If there had mm. been fans at the ground, I'm really curious, first of all, would they have stood by him? If they hadn't, which you could understand given how we were performing, would the atmosphere at the Emirates have pushed the club in a direction they may not felt may not have felt pushed in um, with an empty stadium. So very interesting uh, dynamic. And then, of course, look, things did turn around. I want to ask you one more thing. The All or Nothing documentary gave us a little peek behind the curtain. And, and one of the things that came out of the All or Nothing documentary that I think was received to, had a different reception among different groups of people with some of his motivational techniques uh, before the match and, and some of his team talks and things like that. Just in terms of how the players respond to this manager, I think it is very hard for people who are not professional athletes um, and I can speak as someone who is soundly in the camp of not being a professional athlete, to identify with the absolute sort of fanatical devotion that these young men, these very young men have to give to their careers to get to the level they are at. Many of whom have been doing it since they were eight years old, you know, have not had traditional childhoods. And so we cannot necessarily identify with the type of engagement they need to motivate them. In some ways, they're just kids. But in other ways, they're, they're totally unlike any person we would interact with. What's your sense of, because Mikel is a very, I think, deeply serious, deeply committed person. What's your sense of how he resonates with them and how he connects with them? Because I remember very clearly a scene in All or Nothing where Adu's talking to Josh Kroenke and he's pointing to Mikel and Mikel's sort of making the rounds in the in the cafeteria. And Adu says, you see that? The, see the way he's engaging with the players are like, if he gets that side of it, he can go to the very top. That's the piece he needs. So what's your feeling of the evolution of Mikel in terms of his connection to players, understanding the players and the way they relate back to him? Because from the tactical standpoint, we know he gets it. It's that other part that I'm, I think is a really interesting side of him. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I talk about this quite a bit because it's a really interesting part of Mikel, this, because on one side, you know, as I said, the players back him and they love him and they love what he does. But not all of them. And from speaking to people around it, the one thing you always hear about Mikel is if you're not on the kind of inside with Mikel, if you're not in the group that he really rates and likes, you can feel out in a cold. And a lot of people I've spoken mm. to say that's an area which he needs to walk uh, to learn and to improve on if he's going to continue to progress as a manager at his feet. Because some people do feel left out and have felt left out. Um, when when working with him, and I reference that in, in the book, it's an area where perhaps he needs to improve and work on. Mm. But on the other side of it, when you do feel like you're in the inner circle with Mikel, you know, players run through will want to run through brick walls for him. They believe in him. They absolutely believe in him and what he wants to do. And I agree with you. I think you know, all or nothing was, uh, you know, I really really enjoyed it, and I thought it gave us all an insight that you know that we're not usually privy to, even myself as a journalist who goes down the training ground, we don't see all that sort of stuff. You know, we aren't yeah. allowed to see that sort of stuff. And it's really interesting for us. We can look at it and think, God, that's a bit, you know, David Brent-esque and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I, I get why people point that out. But if you're on the, if you're one of those players in there and you need motivating and you're looking at the guy doing this, you've got a completely different mindset to it and, and it works. And it clearly works. We've seen that it works by the performances on the pitch and the, the environment that Mikel was created at Arsenal and it is just 
worlds apart now in the space of four years what he's built at Arsenal and the environment he's built is incredible and the, the difference is just chalk and cheese and I like I said I always go back to what what it was like at the end of Emery to what it is now and just the training ground the work he's done there in just changing the the face of the training ground the motivational stuff he's put on the walls on the floor that you have to walk on every little bit that he thinks could improve any little edge he thinks can get he can get to improve the players and improve the chances of winning which is what it's all about and it's what Mikel's all about and this comes through in the book is his absolute unquenchable thirst to win and improve is what is behind all of these decisions he makes all the motivational stuff he does everything he thinks about when he's at the training ground is all about winning and um and I just think that's such an interesting part of his character yeah, and I don't think he works without that. I think it's an important part of what works. To your point about saying he can improve on, I do wonder if, if quietly, Edu or the club would be like, you know, you may not love these guys, but can you pretend you like them just enough so we can sell them? You know, because yeah. like when when you're on the outside with him, it's very obvious you're on the outside, and I, I wonder if that puts the club in a difficult position trying to negotiate deals to move those players out you know um it doesn't create a lot of leverage let's put it that way when okay. players are p- posting pictures to social media of like the out group that trained alone <laughs> you know as a cluster of the unmentionables or whatever um look we're going to get into some transfer stuff we're going to get into some uh contemporary season stuff but before we do that i just want to remind everyone the book is revolution the rise of uh arteta's arsenal uh you'll see a link in the show notes to where you can find it but of course you can find it at all of uh your favorite booksellers, whoever those may be. I want to mention that on the back, there's a picture of a, a scene that you might recognize. I recognize it because I saw it through the the warm embrace of Clive, um, Reese Nelson's winner against Bournemouth. So uh, that's something to look forward to. And and it's just a fantastic book that you should absolutely give a, um, give a read and, and a quick read too. So I think you'll, you'll really enjoy it. So Charles, are you okay if we we depart from the book um, as, as a launch point for the conversation, get into some other nonsense that people are interested in? Absolutely. Let's go for it. All right. Well, on the transfer front, I think there's sort of a a recognition slash acceptance that if Arsenal are going to do anything else this summer, a big component of that is moving players on. So uh, let's just start with me asking if the premise is correct. Do you believe that if Arsenal intend to do anything in terms of incomings, that outgoings are going to have to happen first? Yes, 100%. Okay, easy enough. I think that that makes a lot of sense in the context of what we're doing. And also just in terms of numbers, I want to start with one that's not really in the news, but is sort of surprisingly not in the news. And if the situation has changed, Kieran Tierney did not make the match day squad um, against uh, Forrest. Did he, did he make it against Palace now that no. I think about it? No, he did not. So that's two match day squads, right, that he was not involved in. The timber injury may make it appear that he's closer to being in the plans than he might have otherwise. But again, he plays the position in a kind of different way. Newcastle were very strongly linked to start the window, and it's gone kind of quiet. He's on the kind of wage that can make it a little tricky for some clubs. He doesn't have the cleanest injury history, but I think he's quite a good player and not one who should be third choice or fourth choice anything at Arsenal. That's not that's not commensurate with the level of the player that he is. Do you think Arsenal will find a suitor for him that's willing to pay a reasonable fee so he can move on this summer? I mean, at the start of the window, I'd have said yes, 100%. And I'm really surprised that we've got to where we are and Kieran Tierney's still at Arsenal and they haven't found a buyer. I thought he was going to go to Newcastle. You know, well, I was convinced he was going to go to Newcastle. Something changed in their thinking and they decided not to step up their interest and firm up their interest with a bid. They've ended up signing Lewis Hall from Chelsea, which 
I, just, I don't get. I don't really understand. If you've got Tierney there, I don't know why you don't sign Kieran Tierney. And it's left Arsenal in a bit of a tricky position with him. Like you said, his wages are pretty big. We're at the stage of the window now where it almost becomes, well, it does become more of a buyer's market because the clubs who want to shift players on are sitting there thinking, we've only got eight days left to sell these players. What are we going to do? And there is interest in Tierney. Sociedad is still interested in Tierney. I think for him, that would be a brilliant move. It's a fantastic city. They're in the Champions League. But... I can't look. I don't look at it and think Sociedad are going to be able to pay Arsenal what they want, and so you then start getting into realms of loans with an option to buy for Arsenal. It's just not ideal because it basically kicks it all down the down the street for a further another year, and then you're back in the same situation next year. So it's a really it's a strange one. I feel sorry for Kieran Tierney. I think he's too good not to be in match day squads, but I think at the moment, while his future is being resolved and Arsenal are trying to resolve it. I think that's a big part of why he's not in the squad at the moment. I look at even players like Arthur Conquo is not in any squads at the moment for first team or the youth teams. And I think that's a similar situation. It's trying to resolve his future. Nicolas Pepe, uh, another. I think Arsenal are trying to get all these things done, work out what they're going to do. And, you know, I think if Tierney's still an Arsenal player after the 31st and they've moved on enough players that he can be registered, I think he'll certainly come into the squad because he's too good to be sitting you know, sitting in an Arsenal, not using him at all. But I just feel sorry for Tierney. Arsenal just evolved in a way that doesn't suit Kieran Tierney under Mikel Arteta. He's good. I think he improves half of the Premier League teams if he goes in there into their starting eleven. Um, but unfortunately for him, he's just not suited to the way Arteta plays. And I don't think Timber's injury changed anything, to be honest. I still think he doesn't play. You know, Mikel showed in the summer, he used everyone, every option he had ahead, he used Tierney. And even when Tierney came on, he played really well. I thought in the whole of preseason he made impacts in all the games, and yet there he is again behind behind a centre back playing left back, and you know, he, he, like a right back playing left back in Tomiyasu. It's just I, I feel sorry for him. Yeah, I, I think the thing that I that happens for me when I watch Kieran Tierney is I see a player who it's so reductive. Say he just doesn't fit, but he just doesn't. Fit. You look the way he his clearances. You know, his he's got that instinct. Get it away from goal. You know, those big long clearances, headers that aren't really directed at anybody bursting down the wing and putting in a cross, whether there's someone there to get on the end of it or not. And I just think if you put him in a team that wants to play with a more traditional fullback, suddenly you'd see his qualities. But in our team, unfortunately, the actions he takes just don't fit the way we want to play. I, I think to your point, you know, let's say it was Real Sociedad that was interested. Again, wage numbers, always a guess. Their highest earner currently makes 69,000 euros a week if you believe the numbers that are out there, Kieran Tierney's on double that double, mm. you know, so it just, it, it, it would then say, well, are they even going to, they couldn't afford to pay a fee, let alone the wage. Will we eat some of the wage? It, unless you're looking at like a premier league club and a, and a decent size one, that's going to be a hard move to make. Let's talk about another player that you assume might be leaving, but maybe not Nicola Pepe. There's a lot of belief that, a position where we should strengthen is at forward and potentially right wide forward, right? Someone that can be a Bukayo Saka alternate. I think Mikel has a lot of confidence in Reese Nelson, as you would given some of the moments he's delivered uh, recently, one in particular, but it's still a question of whether he can stay fit. Firstly, the thing that I think has really hurt Reese Nelson's career at Arsenal, it's so obvious to say injuries, but it's the timing of injuries. He was injured um, at times when he could have played, would have been available to play, you know, group stage of the Europa League kind of thing. Now this season he's injured all of preseason, so he doesn't get to really make the argument 
for being a player that should be first off the bench or you know get get some rotational opportunities. Maybe it'll be Reese, but Nicola Pepe again, another guy who's on you know 140 a week, 28 years old. The clubs that are interested in him certainly can't pay that kind of wage. So there's been talks of of contract cancellations. He's been training alone, but this is this is a player that divides opinion because I think absence makes the heart grow fonder in a way. And I think there's a lot of people think Nicola Pepe could do a job in an arsenal that has a better buildup, better attack, better structure around him. We only ever saw him really in the Emory era when we were kind of a mess. Could he, could he come in and and give us something off the bench when we're chasing a game or, or spell Saka in a champions league game? I don't see Mikel coming back to this player, but do you have a sense of, what might happen with him as, as the season approaches? Or, I mean, yeah, the window closing approaches? I think they'll end up cancelling his contract. That's my personal mm. view on it. He is back now. I mean, he's been away the whole summer training on his own. He is back at London Colney now. He posted a picture of himself up in the training training yep. uh, in the that. changing room on his own. I don't you know, he's not training with a group or anything like that at the moment. Um, I just don't see Arsenal being able to get, to get any sort of offers for Nicolas Pepe between now and the end of the window. I hope they do. It'd be great if they did, but I just don't see any clubs looking at this from afar and they're thinking Arsenal are going to cancel his contracts. Why, why would we make offer any money for him right now? And like you said, he's on 140 grand a week. So no one's good. No one who would be interested in Pepe would want to pay a transfer fee for him. And, um, we should I sell him to United for half of what they paid for Anthony. Yeah. How about well, that? Good. Yeah, it's a steal. He's better than <laughs> And I, I feel, you know, I think Nicolas Pepe has done all right at Arsenal. He just, again, it's similar to Kiratini. Arsenal just evolved in a way without that yeah. didn't fit Nicolas Pepe. And Arteta and him just didn't have that connection. It just didn't really work. But he did well for Arteta. He played such a huge role in winning the FA Cup in Arteta's first mm-hmm. season. And then the second season, he did well as well. He scored a lot of goals. He was Arsenal, I think he was top scorer or second. He got about 17 goals that season. So he's not been yeah. a flop. He's just, again, the team has just moved on without him and evolved without him. And I just don't see Arteta using him this season. I've seen the argument that people are saying, oh, let's just let's bring him back. Rather than cancel his contract, let's just keep him for the season. But I just don't see that argument because I don't believe Arteta will use him. I think he'll use every other option he has ahead of Nicolas Pepe, Reese Nelson, Kai Havertz, Leandro Trossard. They'll all play ahead of him on the right-hand side. And so what is the point in keeping him? For Arsenal, what's the point? You're keeping around, you're paying all those wages for another year. And for Pepe, what's the point? You're sitting around wasting a year of your career when you're 28 years old. I just think for all parties, for me, it just screams early contract termination, let him go off, continue his career because he's good. He's a good player. He doesn't deserve to sit around. And I just think that's how it's going to, that's going to happen. I would love a Saudi club to come in and offer Arsenal 20 million euros, 20 million pounds before deadline. But I just, from a business point of view, if you're a club and you're a sporting director, why would you go anywhere near that? It just wouldn't make any sense to me. Yeah. I mean, it is a little strange. I mean, this is a guy who, in, in what, 1,600 minutes in, what, 2021-22 season had 10 Premier League goals? That's pretty reasonable. It seems, you know, there are a lot of clubs that would really like to have a player that could do that. I mean, I'm watching 34-year-old Jordan Ayew play, you know, down the right wing for Crystal Palace. Mm. He can't do a job there. Now, they may just say, we're not going to invest that kind of wage in a player at that age, but they just offered Wilf Zaha, you know, double that to stay and he's past 30 or, or 30, maybe. And yeah. I don't think he has more than 10 goals in a Premier League season on his on his CV. So it's just sort of weird to me. Like, there must be something about Pepe that has clubs wanting to stay away. 
because there are teams that need goals, and he has go- if he has anything in him, he's got goals in him, and he has go- you know where he has goals in him in a counterattacking situation. I think he that's how he proved himself in France, and there are a lot of teams that are going to counterattack. I mean, you could argue that heck, Manchester United might be better off with Pepe streaming down the wing than Anthony. You know, just mm-hmm. just a thought, but yeah, it's it's unfortunate situation, and this you know there would be people I think that would criticize the club, Charles, that would say. We haven't managed this right that we can't make a market for him. But if we're going to have to cancel his contract, he's going to wind up someplace like Turkey. What that tells me is there isn't a market. You know, now what would be interesting is if we cancel his contract and then some Premier League club all of a sudden does pop up and buy him, that would, or, or sign him. That does suggest that maybe we, you know, we haven't managed the situation right. Let's get to one where there is a market, um, and that's Flo Balogun, uh, U.S. superstar Flo Balogun. <laughs> Uh-huh. star american one striker one of your own balogun, yeah absolutely one of our own uh red-blooded american there um <laughs> flo balogun is ironically kind of similar to pepe a, a guy who made his name with an explosive season in france and i think to be fair looked pretty sharp in preseason for arsenal i i suspect we would have been happy to keep him and use him he doesn't want that and i don't know that i could you know that people are always so quick to want to blame players for not just being the good soldier for the club. Their careers are short and they have to look after them. A player that wants to play and wants to go prove himself somewhere, I can't look down on that after so many years of complaining about players who were happy to collect a wage at Arsenal and not play. So you can't have it both ways, right? You can't say, oh, Cedric was just happy to you know collect a wage at Arsenal and then say, oh, Flo Balogun, you know, he, he's just selfish and looking out for himself like... He has a right to go play, but we got to find him a club and we got to collect a fee. That's a player at his age, on his wage, should command a big fee, especially looking around the market and what teams are paying. So are we going to get that big fee somewhere? <laughs> I, I think I think they will. I think it's a big few days for Balogun and his future. I think come the weekend, we should know more about where potentially he is going to be going. I'll be surprised if we, if it hasn't moved on. I, I know things are ongoing at the moment. Arsenal-Monaco mm. is still very much talking over Balogun. Arsenal have rejected offers from Monaco for him, but those talks are still going on to try and come to a sort of agreement in terms of... Look, Monaco know what Arsenal want. It's a case of can you get an agreement in, in terms of the you know the total package, the sell-on, the add-ons, all that sort of stuff to get to a number where Arsenal d- deem it successful. They're really trying. They want him. I think Balogun, I think it'd be a really good move for Balogun going to Monaco as well. He obviously knows France. I think Monaco are a great club, historic club. And not I think a bad be, place to, to live. And, and not a bad place to live. Either, <laughs> is no, yeah, yeah, there, there are worse areas to live than Monaco. Um, and so we'll see. But Chelsea are, are sniffing around. For me, that's it doesn't sit well with me, the thought of Balogun. Arsenal doing business mm-hmm. to Chelsea for Balogun. I'd much rather him go to Monaco. I understand if you know, if Chelsea come in and slap a ridiculous offer on the table, then Arsenal might have to think about it. But for me, it should be a ridiculous offer. There's no, you know, I can understand Arsenal compromising with Monaco to get an agreement. There should be no compromising with Chelsea to get an agreement for Flo Balogun. It no. would be, you're right, you you hit our number and that's it. Otherwise, we're not we're not talking. So, um, yeah, and I and I, like you, I wouldn't, I don't blame Balogun for wanting to go either and and wanting to play. He's had his taste of it. He's done really, really well. Why would you then want to go and sort of just sit on the bench hoping for opportunities, even at a club like Arsenal? I think he's always been an ambitious guy. He very nearly left before signing his last contract. Arsenal managed to talk him round and get him to stay, but he's always had this ambition of being the main man up front. And I don't think he sees the pathway, and I don't really see the pathway for that happening at Arsenal just yet. And so. 
let him go, get good money in for him, and and move on. You know, I, th- I think Fulham are in the running kind of as well, but it's nowhere near as progressed as it is with Monaco. They've just got a lot of money for Mitrovic. There's a big gaping hole there up front that they need to fill. Mm. Again, for Balogun, I think that'd be appealing. You know, staying in London, Premier League club, real chance to be the main man for a Premier League club, a good one with a good manager. Um, but I still think Monaco are probably, right now, if you ask me who's in pole position, I'd still probably say Monaco. But I think it's going to be a really interesting few days um, yeah. coming up for, for Balogun. You know, it's it's interesting. Initially, I was made up, my mind was made up. Balogun can't go to Chelsea. That's the one thing we just can't do. Don't do that. If you have to take less money, take less money. But the more I think about it, Chelsea with Enzo and Caicedo and Nkunku and Nico Jackson and Mudrick and Sterling, like if they had a star striker, they could be pretty good, maybe. If they go for Balogun, that's not a guy who I'm convinced is ready to step into a Premier League team and be a a 20-goal striker. I'm not convinced that's where he is in his development. There's no guarantee he'll get there. If they don't get Balogun, maybe suddenly you're talking about Bully slapping down $100 million for Osimhen in the next window or or the window after, you know, something like... I guess what I'm saying is the scenario where Chelsea go for a scarier striker than Balogun is out there. Maybe you take a lot of money for Balogun and roll the dice on the idea that Chelsea wind up having to invest in him and maybe he doesn't... You know, he might be good but not great as opposed to some of the other players they go for. But look... It's all speculation. The one thing that would really, really suck, obviously, is for him to go to Chelsea and ascend and be great. And, you know, don't need that. Especially, look, I lived through the Pulisic at Chelsea era. Thankfully, it didn't go very well. But, you know, when you're talking about a a red-blooded American hero like Flo Balogun, we don't want to see him at Chelsea, obviously. Um, I think... So we'll set that aside. There's another one that we'll we'll touch on, and we'll move through these quickly. Be thoughtful of your time here. Um, Gabriel Magalhaes. The Mikel said there's nothing in it as relates to the selection. I don't think we'll sell him. I think Fabrizio Romano has tweeted we won't sell him. I guess I have a two-part question for you. Uh, Part one is, do you think there's any chance we'd consider selling him? But part two is, even if we don't, are you a believer that him not starting these first two games is related to the potential interest? Because I'm leaning now more towards, I think it is actually just tactical, but I understand why some people just can't get there intellectually. So, do you think we'd even entertain selling? Is it a re- realistic possibility? And then, regardless of that, do you think that's had an influence on him not starting these games? Oh, it's really tough on this one. In terms of do, would would they entertain selling? It's hard to say no because if someone puts you know Saudi coming and put a hundred million pound offer on the table for him, you know they probably would entertain selling him just because of that amount of money. But they absolutely you know they don't want to sell him by any means and. And I think it would be absolutely crazy. I think it'd be catastrophic for Arsenal's season if you sold Gabriel okay. at this stage of the window. It'd be mad. There's no benefit to it on a football inside of things at all. You're not going to get a better player than him in a week. All the money that you get for him, that whoever you move for next, that club's going to know that you're desperate for a centre back, and you're basically going to have to put it all back out again to get a centre back. And then you've got. To They've got to bed in, adjust. They might not be as good. You know, they probably won't be as good. It, it would make no sense whatsoever. So, no, they should not entertain any sort of offers whatsoever for him. I think it, look, it would look no further than West Ham trying to spend their Declan Rice money, right? Like, I mean, yeah, it's or you know, we've seen it happen to Spurs. 
when they Absolutely. sold yeah. and there's only a week Bale. left in all it's like literally I mean as a selling club you'd be laughing if Arsenal came in for your centre back if they'd just sold Gabriel wouldn't you you'd put 20 million pounds on the price tag straight away and because yep. you know they'd be desperate so it wouldn't it would not make any sense and it would be it would make it would be awful I, I do and this is just a hunch it's not something I've got in terms of information I, I do feel like his absence might be something to do with it because the interest is there Saudi are def- there's definitely interest from Saudi Arabia in him and it, I just think just throughout pre-season, there was no hint that we were suddenly going to see Gabriel out of the team or anything like that. And then for it to happen straight, you know, on the, at the start of the season, it just felt really odd and it still feels a little bit odd. And I get, mm. I heard what Mikel said, and it's all tactical, but I don't know. I, I feel like, I feel like there's maybe a little bit more in it than that. I, I actually do think he'll come, he'll start on Saturday. If, if Sinchenko comes in at left back, I think Gabriel mm. comes back alongside Saliba for me because we'll probably then see Ben White go back out to right back. And I can't imagine Party and Sinchenko both both starting together in the back four. So I think we'll see Gabriel come back in against Fulham if Sinchenko plays. And I, that can't happen soon enough for me. I think he has to come back into the team. I, I don't. Now, I'm not tactically some football tactical genius and I bow to those who are far superior in it than me, but I look at what Mikel's done in the opening two games and look, they've won, they've got six points from six, they've won both games, but I don't really want to see that long-term for Arsenal, I, I have to admit. You, you may not know this, but all Twitter tacticals tweets are written by ChatGPT, so I wouldn't worry about it. Um, <laughs> uh, or at least they sound like they are. I, I guess my only rejoinder to people that say he hasn't been playing because of the Saudi thing is this. We're playing a wide three at the back in build-up, right? A three-two. Let's assume Zinchenko hasn't been available for selection. And let's assume that Mikel wants to build up in that three-two. He wants Party and Rice available to play in the midfield in front of three defenders. White, Saliba, and a wide left-sided defender who sometimes plays more like a left back and sometimes plays like a left center back. Where would Gabriel have started? Hmm. You know, again, assuming Zinchenko's not fit, we say, well, why not just go white Saliba, Gabriel, Tomiyasu? Because then you only have one of Party and Rice. And if you pick Party, then you only have one of Havertz or Rice. And what he's been able to do with this system is get both Rice and Party at times playing sort of in a double pivot, still have the three in front of that and still have one in front of that. Um you know, and uh, uh, pardon me, two in front of that and three in front of that. I, I just think it's a system that three-two-two-three that we're doing, where you can't really pick two center backs, and then you you could say, oh, no, I think it's it's about the transfer, which I get, but if it's about the transfer, that's because to some extent you think the player's head's been turned or his focus isn't right or you know whatever the case may be. But he's going to wear the armband and come on down to ten men away to show guts and commitment to defend a a, a critical three points, like. I can't square that circle. You know what I mean, Charles? I can't I can't see a world where he can't start because of the interest, but he can come on in the most pressurized situation and wear the armband and lead us to three points down to 10 men. Like it, the two things feel incompatible. And so when I look at the formation he's going with, for me, I say, I don't, I don't see a position for him. To your point, I think Zinchenko coming back does change that. But you watch, if we go to white, Gabriel, White, Saliba, Gabriel, and Zinchenko. You cannot pick Party, Rice, and Havertz. You can't. I mean, unless Havertz moves to nine. You see what I'm saying, right? There is no world where you can pick them. You have to drop one of those three players. And I think he wants all three of those on the pitch for, you know, whatever the tactical reasons are. So just quickly, quickly, do you at least see the argument that 
there are at least some signs in how we're playing, the players we're putting on the pitch, and the situations Gabriel's been trusted, that maybe this is a tactical innovation that while we may not trust it completely, we may not like party at right back or nominally right back, we may not totally understand what Mikel's doing yet, that if you just try to figure out a way to put Gabriel on the pitch with those players, you suddenly see that it's not as easy as you think. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I do agree. And tactically, I look at it as well and think, if you are having party playing over there at right back and he is going to be moving into the midfield, you would much rather have uh, Ben White as the right side sort of centre-back or whatever you want to call him in that position because he can still get on the overlap and still provide and get into the space vacated by Thomas Partey. So I, I absolutely, I look at, like you said, I look at how Arsenal set up and I, I get it. I 100% get it. Mm. And there is definitely a tactical reason for it. Um, but I don't know, it's just my sense of like, it still feels... You're in the majority, I, I think. I thought, I thought Gabriel was brilliant when he came on against Crystal Palace yep. as well, by the way. Um, I thought it was, it was so important in, in seeing that game out. And he certainly didn't look like he'd had his... He had his head turned or anything like that, and I don't believe he's had his head turned anything mm. either. I just, yeah, I, I get it tactically, but I, I just have that sense that it just feels like to me there might be something bubbling away behind the scenes that maybe Mikel's thinking I might just ease him into things at the moment while this all sort of bubbles away until the window's shut, and then we'll, we'll bring him back. But you know, I tell you what, he's a brilliant option to have on. You'd much rather see Gabriel coming on for the last half an hour than Rob Holding to see out a game. Put mm. it that way. <laughs> You're you're in the majority. I think what I would say is if if we had played, let's say, City away, I think you would have seen more of a traditional back four with, with Gabriel in it. And oh, by the way, he started the the community shield, right? Um yeah. in against a team where we knew we wouldn't have all the ball. I, I don't know. I'll be very curious to see how it plays out. Um, we'll get out of here with with two quick ones. One, um it just there's some other outgoings we don't have to get to. Nuno Tavares quickly, uh, will we get a fee, you think? Oh, get a fee, yeah, 100%. Yeah. They should get a fee. I, I think Nuno's an interesting player, to be honest. And I know he's obviously, there's deficiencies there that are clear for all to see, but I think there's also a lot of positives there for for him as well. And Arsenal should absolutely get They should make money on Nuno Savarez, I think, this summer. Well, and, and it's interesting, right? Because people would say, how can you get a good fee for Nuno, but you can't get a fee for Tierney? And I think that just shows you that a younger player on a much smaller wage is an easier guy to get a fee for. Um, uh, incomings. Is your sense that there would be one? And and at this point, does it have to be a defender or could we still be looking at a, at a forward? I know tenuous links with Kudus at one time, obviously not the case anymore. Defender or nothing? Or do you, do you think there could be there could be a forward option? I still kind of, I, I still feel that there's more likely to sign a forward option than a, a defensive option. I don't... Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that the timber injury is necessarily going to make them go in. I think if if an opportunity arises, they think that works. I think they'd they'd probably try and do it, but maybe a loan or something like that just to provide cover. I think you're not going. I can't see them going out and spending a decent chunk of money on someone to replace a player that they've just spent a massive chunk of money on, who's going to you know fingers crossed be back in nine months and be better than ever. Fingers crossed again. Um, it just. I think you just kind of, you almost then start to stockpile problems and it could become a bit of a problem later on a year down the line. So um, I look at that squad and I look at where I still think probably it needs a little bit more strength in depth and it is more in attacking areas for me. And if they can get a deal done for that, I, yeah, that's the area I still look at and think they might well do, but they need to bring some money in. <laughs> they need to get some money in. I can't, if we get to this state end of the window and they haven't made any decent sales between now and then, I'd be very, very surprised if Arsenal do any more inco- business incomings wise. Yeah. Okay. And I, I don't think that would be outside of what most people expect. And then last but not least, let's just give you a chance to say one fun thing on this. Declan Rice, great player or the greatest player? 
how, how impressed have you been? Oh, I know it's through two games, but man of the match already in his second game and in a game that had both, right? A dominant spell where we controlled the game and then a spell where he had to play suffer ball, uh, which he is absolutely familiar with doing from his time at West Ham. What are your thoughts? Or early returns for, for Rice. And if you want to throw in there two early returns for Havertz, who maybe divides opinion a bit more. Yeah, I Rice is, we're, we're getting exactly what I expected from, from Declan Rice. I was, I was so excited about this sign-in. I thought it was going to be a transformational sign-in for Arsenal, the biggest sign-in they'd made since Sol Campbell in 2001 in terms of what it meant on the pitch, but off the pitch as well, about where they are at a club, uh, as a club. And I think he's been brilliant. At Palace, he was an absolute sensation in that Palace game, both going forward defensively, uh, I think, and he's only going to get better. He's a leader and, you know, he's not going to be someone who's affected by a hundred ten million pound price tag either. I think he'll be fine with that and he'll, he'll thrive on it, if anything. So, yeah, really excited what he's going to bring. Havertz, I just feel, I, I, I feel sorry for Havertz. I don't think he's done anything wrong in these two games. I think he's done, I think Mikel Arteta will be sitting at London Colney now, very happy with what how Kai Havertz has performed in these two games. I think he's got exactly what he wanted from him. And yeah, I just think he's just in that unfortunate position where certainly the online fan base are just on his back because he's Chelsea, He's they didn't want him, they would have rather seen the money spelt on a striker. But from a manager's point of view, I think Havertz is giving Arteta what he wants and I think he's going to get better as well. And um, so, yeah, I think a lot of the criticism is very, very unfair on him. He's done nothing wrong. He's, no, he's done nothing great and I want to see more from him, 100%. I still don't totally get the deal myself you know I, I kind of feel like could Emil Smith Rowe have played there and other players have played there and given a little bit more Leandro Trossard can you get him on the pitch rather than Kai Havertz mm. so I it was a deal that I was really surprised at and I still don't I'm still not fully convinced by it at all but I think the criticism is really really harsh he's played two games the Arsenal won both games and he's done nothing wrong in those games so just exactly. give, the guy, give the guy a bit of time to adjust to a new team to a new manager a new way I think I spoke I sat down with Tommy Asu last season and I spoke to him, this is in the book actually, about you know what is what has improved. How have Arsenal taken this jump from promising, which they were the previous season, to title contenders? And he said, we just understand Mikel. Last year we knew what he wanted, but we just couldn't quite do it yet. We we just it takes a long time to understand what Mikel Arteta wants. And we get that now. We understand it more now. And that's what you're seeing on the pitch. And I always think that with some with with, when I look at Havertz, you know, some players like Declan Rice, they just get it. They're just good enough. They can come in and do it. But with someone like Havertz, it might take a little bit of time. So, yeah, I'm not writing him off at all at this well, early Well point. said. You know how I'd put it? I'd say it like this. I think Havertz has been absolutely fine and basically given us what Shaka gave us, you know, in his first two games. The way I would say it is Kai Havertz has been perfectly fine in the first two games. If this is the ceiling of what he gives us, it was not a good deal mm -hmm. because it's functional, but not explosive, not additive, you know, not accretive versus other options we had in that position. But if this is the baseline of what he gives us and he can go up from here, it's a very good baseline because the baseline is fitted right in, good enough, provides what that position needs at a base level. Now he does have to go on and layer all that stuff into it. And I think it's incumbent upon his teammates as well, not to get too deep into this, but you know, rewatching the the Palace game, he does make some great second man runs and you know, runs to the back post. And teammates are gonna, I think, especially Odegaard and Saka, start to figure out that in swinger to to pick him out at the back post and things like that. That'll become a big weapon for us. So we'll see. I think we should leave it there. The book is Revolution, the Rise of Arteta's Arsenal. You can find it uh 
basically everywhere. Uh, you can go to the Tollington and and get it signed by Charles and, and hear some great chat. You can uh, follow Charles Moore on his website at charleswatts.football. You can check out his fantastic YouTube channel. And it is my absolute pleasure to speak with Charles and also my hope that I will get the chance to do it again in the near future. Charles, thanks so much. You will, 100%. It comes out in the States in November, by the way, as well. Oh, so uh, it's, it's coming yeah, over there. So you can't get it yet. Not in the well, States. Well, you know what? But you can. It's coming out in November over there, so you can certainly get it. it it's coming. Or you can come to my house and you can borrow it from me. There are, there are options. There are options. But no, we want you to wait till November buy it in the States, but you can buy it uh, in the UK. So uh, yeah, well, how about then? I know at least in November, I can tantalize you with a chance to talk about the book again when it's out in the States and, and at least rope you back into coming on the pod. Thanks so Absolutely. much. Charles. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Elliot. Appreciate it, mate. All right. That's going to mean it's time to say hi to Clive. But before we do that, I do want to tell you, that you need to build the best team possible. That's the goal here, right? That's why you have outgoings. That's why you have incomings. If you're going to have incomings for your team, then you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Look, we love Indeed. We talk about Indeed all the time. More than 3 million businesses worldwide use, use Indeed to get uh, to hire great talent fast. It's unbelievably powerful, by the way, delivering four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest 2019. So it's great. They're great. But I want to tell you about some of the tools that they have uh, that make them a powerful hiring partner. And what I want to tell you about is Instant Match. This is great. Over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job with Instant Match, according to Indeed data in the U.S. Over 80% of employers get a quality candidate the moment they sponsor a job. And there's so many things that I like here, but one of the things I particularly like about Indeed is that you pay for what you get. You know, that that's something that I think is a critical component of any relationship I have with any company I work with. I want to get what I pay for. Indeed's the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. And in fact, candidates you invite to apply are three times more likely to apply to your job than candidates who see it in search, according to US Indeed data. So start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash Blue Wire Sports offer good for a limited time. Clave your $75 sponsored job credit now at indeed.com slash Blue Wire Sports. Just go to indeed.com slash Blue Wire Sports and support the show by saying you heard it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Blue Wire Sports. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire. You need Indeed. Is that enough of that? Indeed. Nailed it. And that voice you heard is Clive. You can find him on Twitter, Clive BFCL Clive. Yeah, I know. Clive, I have to say, um, you know, we do a lot of pods together, you and me, and obviously Tim and Paul and all of us. And I think there's a lot of different things we do that are a lot of fun. Uh, yesterday, we did our Premier League power rankings over on the Patreon side. And because a lot of those teams are shit, it, you did your usual analysis. I get to have my silly sort of fun. It sparked a lot of interesting controversy about where I rank teams, that's for sure. But people really liked it. I just want to say, uh, nice job. I en- I enjoyed chatting with you for that one. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was good fun. And and. The, you do get me going on a couple of people. I like to be a nice guy, but eventually mm. I've got to get the old two-footed tackle out, right, on a couple of clubs. So, um, and they got it. I think your section on Casemiro alone uh, is worth chopping up and throwing into a main pot in the future at some point, um, and your your uh, affinity for certain fried chicken places and things like that. But we can come we can come on to that another time. Um, as we sit here recording, obviously you've just listened to the Charles Watts section. Things continue to develop. It looks like Balogun is an, it, inching closer to Monaco, which I'd be. I think happy with over Chelsea. There's also rumors that Saudi Arabia are legitimately in for Pepe. The Pepe thing's a little interesting, but none of it's concrete enough or, or need to dive into deeper than what we did in the previous section. So I think what we can do is we can turn our attention to Fulham. And Clyde, before we get onto the Fulham of it, I think the question on everybody's mind is, 
Will we see the same thing again? Will we see Party right back? Will we see, um, you know, well, it won't be Tomiyasu because it'd be suspended. Will we see Kibior left? Or, you know, will the Tomiyasu suspension mean that Arteta finally goes back to the quote-unquote traditional back four that we used all last season? What's your instinct on whether we're going to continue to see the same thing, much to the chagrin of a lot of people who don't seem to understand it, or, uh, or are we going to go back to something that looks a little bit more familiar? Yeah, so familiar back four. Last year, it wasn't so familiar the year before. We used to have Kieran Tierney up in lane five. Remember that one? Then we got yep. Sinchenko in and he changed our lines. Now we got this bloke called Ben, Tom ben White Marley. was our star center back the year before. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and yeah. so it's it's difficult. And it is something, it is around understanding. And we can only guess, right? And um, I can look at the two teams that we played. The first team, Forest, had the lowest percentage in the league last year on possession. So... I said to myself, oh, we're picking a team of build-up people, you know? And you look a bit deeper, you think, actually, Declan Rice is normally a left six or, you know, left centre mid, and now we're inverting from the right. That sort of makes sense to make him feel comfortable. So I explained that one away. And then you look at the last game against Palace, and and party was wider much more. And then um, there's less defensive rotations. But then you see Rice playing a true six on the right-hand side and left. You think, oh, gear, this is interesting. So what's really happening here? And I think when I was when I was a lad, Elliot, when I'd when I'd an afro and I'd go and I'd go and watch Arsenal in the early two thousands, <laughs> <laughs> I used to love. I don't, know if, I don't know if listeners are aware of this, but I used to love Patrick Vieira, right? And the reason why I loved him so much was I felt he'd, he'd do two jobs. I mean, literally on some days we'd put him in midfield with Jules Grimondi, and it was okay because he did all the jobs in there. And it sort of, that's why I started to get more interested in football and analysing it. And, and I use terms like redundancy, right? And I don't like seeing people doing one job and they're redundant. If you're going to do one job, you better be really good at it, right? So when you're building a team, you're looking for people not to be redundant in phases of the game. So three phases of the game, in possession, out of possession, and transition, right? So speed of your ability to flick from defensive transition to offensive transition, you look for those players, happen in all parts of the pitch and he's introduced that to us with his player selection identification in recent years you can see there's less redundancy in our team people do are happy in more places in the pitch but the next phase for us seems to be to me you want more people like Vieira doing two jobs and so you can call it hybrid you can call it whatever you like the ability to do jobs but actually doing two jobs in game that's the difference so we know Ben White can play centre-back and right-back. But he's actually doing it in the same game. And really doing it. You see what I mean? And then people are taking their position off of him. You've got Thomas Partey who's playing right-back and centre-midfield, but he's really playing centre-midfield. And then he's really playing high and wide as a right-back. You know, got Declan Rice playing six and eight. And he's doing it for real. But what's happening is, is to react to the other players to fill in the spaces that they leave. I think that's the key thing. So we've we've created a form of people doing two jobs, lots of them doing two jobs, to the point now where only one or two of them are doing singular jobs. Maybe Sleeper controlling from the back, almost like a like a FIFA controller controlling the whole team, you know. And um, and mm-hmm. and so these these two jobs, you know, almost two faces of each player, and their absolute instantaneous reaction to move from one job to the other with full confidence knowing that their teammates are going to cover what they've left behind, that's pretty stunning, stunning change in how we play. 
I think as fans, I think we need to try to understand it. Well, this is how I'm seeing it. Does that make sense? We're doing so many different things in game. That comfort of, you said it, traditional back four, you said it, it makes us feel comfortable, doesn't it? What this system does or how we're playing and how we're increasing the roles of people, it doesn't feel comfortable until we understand it. Yeah, yeah, I I think that's fair. Look, it's interesting because I was sort of convinced, I've sort of convinced myself that this isn't just some Gabriel's had his head turned by Saudi Arabia thing. I, I think... Mikel Arteta is, I think, a fairly transparent manager, actually, um, by and large. And I think we saw him use Thomas Party this way at the end of last season, too. When the title was gone, he started playing with this a little bit. Yeah. Now, I, I think at that time, a lot of it was our assumptions about availability. This time, it may be, too, because Zinchenko is sort of the key ball progressor inverting. And without him, Mikel may feel we simply need another one. And the only other one he trusts to do it as much as Zinchenko is Thomas Party. So that that may have contributed to it. It will be interesting, though, now, because Zinchenko is back and Tomiyasu is not available. And so the natural, obvious inclination is that Zinchenko is going to come back in. What I will say is, I, I mean, it, I can't imagine, Clive, that he can go <laughs> uh, Party, White, Saliba, Zinchenko. That feels very aggressive. Yeah. Um, you know, whatever you think of Tomiyasu as a defender, and Timber, I think, is, is quite good at it. Having Zinchenko inverting off the left and Party inverting off the right and and really just having that sort of white and Saliba central area occupation, I don't know, it feels a little vulnerable. And yet I find myself thinking he's going to do it. Uh, because what he's got in front of him is the worst defense in the Premier League coming to the Emirates. And it's a chance to really, I think, push the pedal down even further on this dominate the ball, dominate the chances approach that we've taken. So am I crazy? Is that just way too open a way to play? I think dominate the ball, dominate the chances. That's one aspect. But dominate the space. Um, Remember last year and I was moaning, like I do, post the Brentford game when Brentford went long. And this Stay in your lane, Clive. That's that's my lane. <laughs> I do the moaning around here. <laughs> and our ability to recover into the spaces was was challenged on the day. And we were destabilized. Mm. Then other teams started to do it a little bit more. And it sort of led towards maybe a bit of a rocky end of form. When people missed out our front door press, right? It missed it out completely. And so what's happening now is our domination of the spaces. And that is, I will say, bringing in Havertz and Rice, their ability to run and read and get to the ball first in either direction is really, really impressive. You know, really impressive. Our running power physicality has improved with them on board. We've obviously Sleeper back in the room. Thomas Party still on the pitch. Suddenly we're getting to a drop of the ball and we're regaining, retaining really, really well. So I, I look at it now and I just say to myself, where are we going? I think pre-season, do you remember we played Gabriel centre-centre-back in one of the games and we didn't look so good? I can't remember which one it was. I think that was a trial. I think when we played Kivior left it was a trial. You know, when we're playing party here now, I think it's a, it's a trial. When I say trial, it's an option, you know? And I think all of these are options. I don't think Gabriel plays well as a central centre-back. So that's maybe been thrown away. That may be our weakness. The only other person that could probably do it is probably Ben White. But Sleeper's unique. So do we have a weakness there? And I think we do. So I think that's what we need to buy in a centre-back area, somebody dominating, somebody that has the aura. You know, no one's going to have the aura of Saliba, but 
We need another aura centre back that, that stands up, that can be physical. So I think Kivior could play at the weekend quite easily. And Thomas Party play as well. We could see Chinkenko come in. To be honest, I'm open to all of it. And it's, and it's like we are preparing for a day which, which isn't Fulham. It's for the days down the road that we are looking and learning about our players, about where they're best used, what day best to use them. And we all said, didn't we, we wanted to get depth. We wanted to be make sure we're in shape when it really counts. I'd be interested to see when we do what the rotation around those key players are, like like Thomas Pyatt, for example. Does he need to play this game, running him down the touchline? Do we sit him down for the next game, which is, is it Man United? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? uh, yeah, it is. And, and so it makes a bit of sense, isn't it? You know, so let's see where we're going. I'm still learning about this and the manager, what he's going to be like this season with the Champions League coming up. I think it's just incumbent upon us to sort of open our minds up to what he's trying to do and what he's trying to tell us, which is, I'm going to be different. We're going to be harder to read. We're going to make sure we do have players rotating in all aspects of the pitch, not just the front five, but in the back five as well. And you got to be careful because you could think to yourself, this is a game to experiment a little bit. A bad team coming to the Emirates. We're good. They're bad. Hey, no problem. But like Southampton took points off us at the Emirates. Bournemouth, thankfully, didn't. Uh, made for a fun day, but <laughs> mm. almost took points off us at the Emirates, right? It was some of the bottom teams that caused us some of the biggest problems last season, and we can't afford to have that again. Let me just give you a little context on Fulham, if you don't mind. Yeah, go for it. Fulham have the worst defense in the Premier League. And when I say they have the worst defense in the Premier League, I mean no one is anywhere near them in terms of how bad they are. If you want to look at goals allowed... They look all right, middle of the pack, three goals allowed. Okay, no big deal. If you want to look at expected goals allowed, Wolves is second worst as are Everton. 4.4 expected goals allowed, okay? Through two games, that's not great, is it, Clive? No. Fulham, having played mighty Everton and a decent Brentford, have allowed 6.4 expected goals through two games. 6.4. Now, Everton, would you say Everton are a mighty attacking force that you have to be terrified of? Would that, no, is that how you characterize them? Not really, no. In the first half of Fulham's first game against Everton, they were outshot 10-1 to 1 and conceded three big chances. In the first half to Everton, they continued to get battered in the second half and somehow won 1-0. A stunning uh, failure in finishing. Against Brentford, they were almost as bad and then got sent down to 10 men. Tim Ream sent off, so he won't be available. So you take the worst team defensively, and you take out Tim Ream. Now, you could argue they've been so bad. Does it hurt them to lose Tim Ream? Maybe whoever comes in is better. Um, you know, they still have the decaying corpse of Willian that can run around a little bit. The rest of it is really weak. They're trying to play uh, Raul Jimenez up top. But, like, the thing I want to ask you about is Polina. Because Polina is legit good. But he hasn't been starting for them. He did come on. He, he hurt his Redford. shoulder, I think, in preseason. That's why he's not been around. Because, mm. and if he was around, I think he'd have been sold. You know, he, he was that valued. Well, well, I mean, he was yeah valued very, very, very highly. He did come on in the last game, and I would say that for a team that has been the worst, um, you know, the worst def- defense in the league, as I highlighted, and worse than you can possibly imagine. I've seen links to Liverpool. Um, you know, and, and West Ham, but I mean, Liverpool 
could use Polina. I think at one point, maybe he was even linked to like uh, Manchester City, I think at one point. This is a player that can change the dynamic a little bit and can make that Mm -hmm. midfield battle a lot more difficult to win um, and create a transition game that Fulham could, could leverage into some chances. So, is is he sort of the key for you? If they if they're able to get him in the lineup to start, does that change the the midfield battle for you a bit? I mean, it has to. I think right? if you want to, last week we spoke about Crystal Palace and they lumped a lot of the creative responsibility and talismanic responsibility onto from Zaha to Eze, and Fulham's mm-hmm. talisman is Mitrovic, and Mitrovic is gone, and they've got Jimenez in and. This is the problem they have because there are some players that mean more than just the number in the shirt. And Mitrovic has gone up, gone down with them, scored 40 plus goals, wins in the championship. This is a major player, spiritually and emotionally, to them. And I'm afraid Jimenez just hasn't got it since since we you know what happened to him at the Emirates that day. He hasn't found the same bravery and the same pizzazz he used to have. They brought in a Dharma into a team to help him, and they brought in a young player at the back called Calvin Bassey. Again, only reason I know about him, Elliot, because, you know, my Rangers leanings, right? So <laughs> he used to play for Rangers, and then he went to Ajax. He's a left-footed centre-back. He used to be a left-back. Sort of player that was a team like Liverpool could do with, actually. Somebody can play inside and out. That third defender on the outside. Yeah. Quite a bombastic forward-thinking player. I'm not sure of his absolute quality, but he's got potential. And, again, he's a young player that needs to be settled into a, into a settled team, which Fulham are not. They're not a settled team. You know, sometimes in the game of football, you can um, almost smell the teams that are doing quite well. You know, like your Brightons and your Brentfords, they got it together. If you're a player, you think, I don't mind joining them. Okay, money is money, right? But I don't think it's going to be too many players queuing up to join Fulham at the moment because they can smell problems. They can smell Saudi Arabia looking around at William, not sure it's going to go or gone. Um, they can, there's problems there. Palina's sitting there that could go. There, there's problems there. The manager was approached by Saudi. He stuck around, but you can see that the boat is unsailed. So I'm not, you know, we are, they come at a good time to us, right? We do well against them at home and they come at a good time. So let's just go and do our job and against them and um, absolutely smash them into smithereens and so we can go and enjoy our Saturday nights. Yeah, I would I would love that. Thank you very much. Um they are the the perfect combination of not carrying that much threat and being absolutely terribly disorganized at the back. Um you know, you might say this is an opportunity for example for a Trissard to start maybe over Martinelli who hasn't been at his best, but you know, if I'm Mikel Arteta, I'm looking to get my I hate to say first choice cuz everybody's kind of first choice. You know, we don't we don't other than Bukayo Saka, right? Nobody's clear first choice. I'd want to mm-hmm. get that left-hand side unlocked a little bit against Fulham if I could, right? I'd want to get Kai and a sister a goal if I could or get Martinelli off the, you know, off to a, a start on the score sheet if I could. So I'd be looking to keep them in there. If I was going to go with Troussard anywhere, you know, hopefully you can bring him on early, early, you know, with 30 yeah. minutes to go in the game and and the way games are played now, that could be 40 minutes to go in the game. I guess it, it it's almost harsh to even ask it because he's done – just about everything asked of him so far, but he didn't really finish against Palace, so it's worth bringing up. Do you think Inkedia will continue to start up front? Maybe. I would like. I genuinely would like to see something different. I don't think it's a it's a mark of failure, but Eddie seems to like to be on the the right hand side of our of our team a little bit. Everybody and, does, <laughs> and obviously with Thomas Party, who used to take care of the right half from centre mid anyway. 
And now he's playing right back, and he's so good at getting to passing lanes, like Odegaard. You, you sort of give him the ball, you know? And then, um, so you got Odegaard, Party, Saka, and Eddie down one side. On the left-hand side, you've got people that are completely isolated, having to do, like, you know, magic to get around people, etc. And it, it feels a little bit imbalanced. And when Jesus comes back, he, I just think he balances us out a little bit more. And the only other one that balances us out, I just think he reads combinations, is Trussard, you know? So that's just, again, I can only go on what I've seen before historically, and I'm trying to wipe my mind, almost like men in black, wipe my mind, new season, <laughs> new competitions. Don't keep doing what you saw before. Allow your mind to be open to see something new. I can't help but think we, we, we're, a, we're a team that attacks by committee, and our best committee forwards are Trussard and Jesus. You know, and, um, and maybe one of our better defensive forwards is, is Havertz, who allows us to play around and, and over things, you know, when we're under high pressure in big against the big teams. And Eddie's somebody that plays really, really well. When he plays really, really well, I'm not sure we play really, really well. Does that make sense? I'm just never been, I'm not convinced by that. And and then we've won, we've won a couple of games of him. So what does that make sense? But, but I think we we lack cohesion a little bit. And well, I did say in his last game he was technically better, he was sound. I just think he's not as collaborative as as others. And, and that's his style, right? He's more he's a selfish forward, and that's absolutely fine as well, as long as you're scoring. You know, and if yeah. you're not scoring, then people then question you in a slightly different way. Yeah. I mean, it, it is one of those things. We we used to say it with Aubameyang, right? We were, even when he was at his absolute pomp at Arsenal, our argument with Aubameyang is if his XG was good and he was getting in dangerous scoring positions, Aubameyang's doing the Aubameyang job. Judge him on that. Because yeah. that's that was his superpower. Somehow get into positions to score goals because he had a real good feel for runs and, and got into dangerous positions at a very high rate. But I think what we came to understand with Aubameyang too is unless he's scoring 25 goals a season he does hold back the way the other players around him play. And so there is there is a delta, I think, in goal scoring where it starts to be an issue. If you have a 25-goal-a-season striker, you can afford to carry a guy who's probably less involved in what others do. I'll give you a perfect example, by the way. Have a look at Manchester City. How many touches a game does Erling Holland have? Nine? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eight? Three of them are in the back of the net? And I think the argument with Erling Holland, and this was very true at the start of last season, was Erling Holland is making Manchester City worse overall. And the feel, the reason for that was their, their build-up play and their attacking play wasn't as effective. But you know what? If you score 40 goals in a season, then you don't need to be as effective in other phases of the game because you're getting your goals. And I think Eddie... I'm gonna, what, I mean, this what? is going to get clipped up and put on the internet, me comparing <laughs> Eddie to Erling Holland. But like, I, I do think that there is a similarity... In, in styles of play, we clearly want to play a little bit the way City want to play. And with Eddie, I think we're clearly playing with a player who is a lower-touch finisher. I wouldn't mind seeing like a Trissard, someone who shows their boots a little more and combines a little more. Um, I have a preference what, but, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have yeah, a preference Go ahead, please. But what, I, what I'll say, Eddie, is I thought Eddie had his cleanest technical game in his last game. right? So I thought that was his, one of his better games. And he didn't score. I've often said to you, I don't care about him scoring. I care about how we look as a collective unit, you know. And I thought that was my one of my favorite Eddie games at May night at home last year. It was obviously a good one, but that was one of my favorite Eddie games because I felt he, when the ball went into him, he was ready. He'd lay it off. He would set or get it back. He was bright. He was making runs. 
short runs, channel runs. I thought, yeah, there you go. Really, really sharp. And that's why one of our stock risings when we did the instant reaction around him. But I may be looking a slightly down the road. I think there's more to come offensively and cohesion-wise. So I'm looking at the, the pieces in place and asking myself, what's different for when we are really cohesive? You know, we've made a number of changes, right? Havertz could be one of those reasons as well, though we use Shaka as a decoy and Havertz is doing the same decoy role, just not finding him in the box, you know, and he's doing a lot, Havertz doing a lot defensively, running and and reading the drop of the ball and keeping the ball in a playmaker way where he doesn't get pressed like Shaka used to because he can look after it, right? So we get a lot of continuity from him. So I'm just looking at it, not for today, not for Sunday, but there's also a number of players sitting on the bench, like you mentioned. I'd like to see just given a few more minutes to see what we can find out about them. You know, I think that's fair. Yeah, and and I think the the data. This look, the eye test works. I think people know what we have in Eddie and Kedia, but the data sort of backs it up. Now, to be fair, you also want to be a little bit careful about data. Um, you, you know, when you're when you're looking at two games. Right, mm-hmm. I, I think that's probably probably fair to point out as well, but you know when you look at Eddie and Kedia both this season and last season, Eddie and Kedia of all the forwards we play is at the bottom of things like progressive passes, passes into the penalty area, key passes, which is a pass that leads to a shot, and expected assists. Okay, which is um, the quality of chance you set up. Yeah. Now you can say, well, he's the striker. Strikers don't do that. But a player, for example, who is good at th- that data. That, those stats, is Gabriel Jesus. Yeah. He's very high on things like expected assists and progressive passes and key passes. And it's because, and this goes without saying, he's our starter. He's our first choice nine. He has a better feel for when to drop in, how to combine, how to you know move the ball forward to the wingers. And I think, look, as with all due respect to Eddie, our best attacking players, even over Jesus probably, are Martinelli and Saka and Odegaard, right? Yeah. Um, and so you want the center forward to find ways to bring them into the game. And... I think it's more natural for Trissard to do that. So it's tough because guess who leads us in expected goals? Eddie and Kedia, right? Mm-hmm. Eddie and Kedia is doing a number nine's job in a traditional sense, but maybe not doing a number nine's job in an arsenal sense as well as well as it could be done. But Mikel's picked him, which means he's doing what he's he's been asked. I have a weird feeling for Trissard in this game, but I can't decide if I think it'll be at the expense of of a Martinelli or an Eddie and Kedia. It may be the case that Mikel knows Eddie's minutes are going to dry up this season. It's going to get hard because Gabriel Jesus will come back. Trossard's going to get some minutes. Kai might play number nine in some of the harder games. Maybe, is it possible, Clive, that the manager who rates this player and convinces player to stay wants to give him minutes where those minutes are available so that he is rewarded for what the manager has called out as being training like crazy and, and being a great part of the group? It, it could be, and... I, we had a conversation around Eddie when Jesus got injured last Christmas, and there was a lot of angst around that conversation because we were all a little bit worried when Jesus had yep. a free month. I'm not worried. This conversation right now is an easy conversation. We're talking five, ten percentiles because he's improved since that day. You know, he's improved in his movement, his speed, his technical control. He's improved. Have we improved offensively? We're probably looking at this team thinking, you know what, this team is defensively focused. They are on it. They're not having anyone push them around. So we can all look at that. We took our best defender out and we're still on it, right? So um, as we learn about our midfield construction, right? So, but then we all, you know, back of our minds, a little bit cheesed off. We didn't score three or four against Forest. 
And the Kayla referee maybe took a goal away from us. We'd have probably beat them by two at Palace. Mm. So we haven't we haven't had our little goal vest. <laughs> you know? So we're we're waiting for it. And I it's so be interesting to see what happens. But I've got no angst over this. I've got no angst. Eddie who he is who he is and he's really improving and I was really impressed with him last game. But like anything, like anybody, I want to see a little bit more from not just him, but from Havertz and Martinelli and Saka. Well, I want to see them all stick it in the back of their net, right? So um, how are we going to do it? And mm-hmm. we've, seen, we've got a chance maybe the weekend. I don't want to disrespect Fulham because as Forrest showed, you know, give someone a, a sniff, they'll take it, right? So I don't want to disrespect them, but we have a chance if we're offensively focused to really do something against them, which I think would be positive step for Man United. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we need to get our, our attack on track this game. And, mm. and this thing, by the way, if people are like, what are we complaining about Eddie for? You know, Eddie had our best chances in the last game, a little unlucky with finishing, played pretty well. You know, he's yep. he's scored a goal already this season. I totally get it. But I don't think anybody listening to this could argue our attack hasn't impressed the way we might have expected in these opening two fixtures. It's been a bit of a concern. And granted, the second fixture, we played half half an hour with, with 10 men. But And so then when you say that, you say, well, Martinelli's here to stay. He's going to start. That's just it. Sack is here to stay. He's going to start. Odegaard's here to stay. He's going to start. And Kai Havertz was 65 million pounds. He's here to stay. He's going to start. So if you say the attack hasn't been firing, there's only one guy in the attack that all of us agree is an option, but not the option. And so So, he's going to come under more scrutiny, fairly or unfairly, by the way. Because I'm not saying those other guys have been brilliant. In fact, yeah, I I rewatched the game against um, Palace. And the first half, what I will say is, wow, did we do a great job in possession and build up and things like that. But you know what? Saka, I love Bukayo Saka. Bukayo Saka did not have a great Saka day in terms of his final contribution in the final third. Martin Odegaard was off, well off his best distributing in the final third. Martinelli yeah. wasn't in the game the way he normally is. So I'm not saying any of those guys have been good enough. I just think we know those guys are those guys aren't going anywhere. So the attention winds up on the guy who's who's the backup. You know? Yeah, and I feel that's a, I, I I hear the words that coming out of your mouth, and I I know that's true. But I also know it's a little bit unfair, you know. It's it almost like the the apprentice at work never quite gets paid as much as the guy you bring from the outside. You know what I mean? It's like it's not fair. Right? It's not fair on that guy, and he might have to leave to go and get his true worth, right? So, I, I look. You, you know where I am with, with Eddie. I think he's a. I think he's a fine player, but there's more to come, right? And uh, there's more to come in the in in the attack. But it's not just him. I think Martinelli's been okay, you know, against you know, against Forrest, he was outstanding, wasn't he, for the first hour. You know, and um Havertz was outstanding. I felt a charity shield. Saka's been in and out, his movement off the ball is, is brilliant. He knows when to go short, when to go long, and every time he makes a decision, the ball arrives and he's already he's already there. You know, he's just a fantastic player. The final pass has not been quite there, but it's gonna come, right? It's August. Odegaard's been fine. The reason why I like what I like about this group, Elliot, is when there was a bit of pressure towards the end of Forest, when there was a bit of pressure towards the end of Palace, we turned into something else and we got more serious. We either, we either low blocked them and said, Yeah, what do you got? You know, at Palace. Mm-hmm. Or we then got more serious in our passing and our ball possession and our ability to read a drop of the ball and we turned them over as we did against Forest. So I'm I'm liking that side of us, the side that that really understands what winning is, you know. And I think the introductions of someone like a Declan Rice, I think he's somebody that 
will never play well against, I'll say before for England, against North Macedonia. He ain't bothered with that game. But when it's a hard game or a hard period, then he really steps up. And I think that's happening to more players. I, th- I can really see them stepping up in the, in the critical moment and not falling away. And if you want to win the big stuff, mate, that's exactly what we need. And we also need to win in a less emotional way, in a, in a quite economical way. We're going to have games on a Wednesday that are going to feel big to us. But the players need to have a, a play style and an approach and an emphasis on the critical fundamental parts of the game, which allows the game to be easier for them. But part of that is scoring at the right time, you know? Otherwise, the game becomes stressful naturally. So can we control the scoreboard? Then we, could, then we can control the pace of the game. So I'm looking ahead. Because what we're doing now is not for now. It's for when we have a a big European game followed by a big six game on, away on a, on a Saturday night. That's, that's what we're building for, for these moments to come out of that with the maximum points. And that's new for us, right? So we have to open our minds up to that. Yeah, one of the reasons I think I'd like to see Zinchenko come back in is just to see if we can restore a little bit of balance. Like, I think at our best last season, we were still right side dominant, but there was mm. a decent amount of balance to the threat we carried at both sides. And we were able to switch the play pretty effectively. I think in our first two games, the right side dominance has been maybe too overemphasized, and we've been slow to switch the play and build up the left-hand side, which isn't helping Kai Havertz integrate, certainly isn't helping Martinelli either. Um, And I think with Zinchenko, if you have more access to Havertz, I think you'll see our attack blossom in a way it didn't last season because what we all believe or hope is that Havertz can add something in attack that Shaka did not. That's the hope. Mm. He hasn't really had the access to doing that but I think if Zinchenko steps in and gets into those more advanced left half space areas and Kai can make second man runs and you know exchange passes with Martinelli, I think we could really see a new dimension to the attack. And I think Havertz is, I mean, um, Zinchenko is somewhat key to unlocking that. The issue is I'd also like to see the White-Saka partnership come back a little on the right and see what that does for that side. Now, if you're going to do that, and this is, I think, the last point here, uh, Clive, if you go back to White and Zinchenko, with Gabriel and Saliba in the middle. If you go to that four, now you don't have to, by the way, you could do, yep. you, you could do party Saliba and Zinchenko. We already discussed that feels open. But if you go back to the back four of last season, you cannot pick party and, and rice. Yeah, there's, so no, you, there's no so room. You, so you sit, so you sit Thomas party, right? He, he's the one okay, with, that's what with, I want uh, to ask. Is that what you He's do? the one with the uh, WD four in his hips, right? He's the one who's 30 years of age. You just need to, you just need to, just no problem. You know, you, you sit in for, for Fulham at home. It's, it's not a problem, but the big games, you decide what you want to do. Right. And uh, that's what these players are playing for right now. Remember last year when we lost Martinelli, when Jesus came out, we lost Martinelli because the left side just lost a bit of glue. Right. But we had Sinchenko. Now we haven't got Sinchenko and Jesus. So the left side is really, not say struggling, but it's just not quite as um, as sharp as it could be. And I don't think, I almost don't want to judge them until we do see one of or both of Sinchenko and, and Jesus in there. Because I think Havertz and Martinelli and that combination, I think it could be really, really good. I really feel that. Can, can I ask you one thing though? If we do that, if we, if we go to White, Saliba, Gabriel, and, and Zinchenko, the biggest change in the dynamic there is that Zinchenko obviously would be the Im- inverting fullback off the left. If we sit party down for this game, fine. That means Rice has to occupy a little more of that right half space that party's so comfortable ocu- uh, occupying yeah. traditionally. 
How do you see Rice adapting to that? Because that is that is a bit of a change. I mean, he played very centrally against Palace and looked very comfortable. And by the way, his best involvement in the whole game, stepping in off the right half space, right into the final third to play Nketiah in for what should have been a beautiful assist. So I think he can yeah. do it. But what do you think of that as a dynamic? The fact that Rice in that kind of setup would just have to get more comfortable being more of a, a right-sided player where he's traditionally been a bit more of a left-sided player. Yeah, there's a, there's a few lessons from the Palace game. So I, I would have been a little bit worried about the fit of Rice in, into our team because I, I thought we brought Timber to allow him to stay left. Do you see what I mean? Inverting from the right um, as we're doing our stuff pre-season. But seeing Rice play six like he played it at Palace was like, it was the future is here, right? So there you go. He's just tremendous in that role. So don't worry about him anymore. He can play left, right. That's 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 gone. That's been erased. Right, so seeing and this is your Tim show actually seeing Georgina come on as the the closer but in front, you know what I mean? Um, I thought that was a great shout from Tim. Georgina came on and that was the end of that. Everything changed, everything stopped. Everyone knew where to stand. Everyone looked at him and said, "You're in charge of this," and he just took over. And then seeing Jinchenko come on. <laughs> just look after the football the way he does. He makes it look so easy. People run towards him. He just turns away, turns back again, pops it off, gets it back. Next minute, five passes are gone and they've dropped off five yards. And he's like, <laughs> he's like mm-hmm. we're not, we're not going to get embarrassed by this lark. <laughs> we're going to stop that pressing lark, you know, because he, he's now doing his stuff. He makes you feel so comfortable. And um, I can't say I don't want to see that in our football team, you know. And then there's some people saying, but what about the time he got nutmeg to Anfield, Clive? And that's the thing, right? We have to manage him. I don't think he's a 90-minute player, if that makes sense. Mm. Nor does he need to be. I think it's what we've got to get with. He doesn't need to do 90 minutes. We can do other things for the last 20 minutes and solidify and change and protect those calves, right? We've got to do something. It's a, I totally agree. There's one thing that does annoy me, though, when people... I, I think overstate the vulnerability of Zinchenko defensively when he's in our team is he got nutmegged at Anfield. I mean, William Saliba's given the ball to the opposition. Gabriel's given away a penalty. Like defenders have bad moments. When Saliba, White, Gabriel, and Zinchenko played last season, we were the best defense in the league away from home, period. Yeah. That didn't happen by accident, people. So don't tell me Zinchenko makes us defensively vulnerable. What made us defensively vulnerable is the way we were destabilized defensively. And we had players like, you know, with all due respect, Rob Holding starting, right? We, we then yeah. lost White. Uh, you know, Saliba is our best defender and it destabilized us. But when that back four started away from home last season, we were the best defense. And I think we can be again. My biggest thing going into tomorrow is this. If he wants to reintegrate Zinchenko, uh, going into Saturday, I should say, if he wants to reintegrate Zinchenko, I... I I just want us, you know what I want? I want us to go into the United game, feeling very sure about how we want to approach that game and with what personnel. And this game gives Mikel a chance, if he wants to look at a different setup, like our traditional back four from last season, one time before the United game, because that's the back four he's thinking of picking for that game. I'd like him to get a chance to play it. Maybe it's for 30 minutes against Fulham or whatever it is. But I, you know, if we're going to play without party and just Rice, which we have not done yet this season, obviously, and that's a, a lot of responsibility on Rice. Give him a game to get comfortable in that role. Let's just see how we do. I think we can leave it there. I think we're going to learn a lot from this game. It is a chance for our attack to get on track, but I'm going to use the words, the words from last season that nobody knows what they mean. Trap game, right? It's Manchester United next weekend. That's a statement game. They look a mess. We're going to want to get at them. Fulham are bad. Their defense is bad. Their attack is bad. We're just going to stop them, right? Right. 
You have to earn that win. You don't get to just get three points and play United. You've got a batter Fulham. So I'd like to see a really professional performance because against Forrest at home in the first week, I thought we were very professional in the first half and I thought we kind of got a bit arrogant and, and complacent in the second half and made that game a little nervier than it needed to be. We have to stay laser focused. I think Mikel is obviously great at keeping his players in that mindset and I'm excited to see what they can produce. Um, you know, in the wake of Luton beating Chelsea tomorrow. So we'll see how that goes. Okay, let's leave it there. Clive's on Twitter at Clive PFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. My name is Alex Smith, the Buckman Twitter. The football content awards are out. Um, it's one that we like to participate in. If you want to vote for us, um, you can go to their website and vote for us for Best Premier League Podcast if you'd like to do it. You can look on uh, the podcast Twitter. We have a pinned tweet about how you can do it. If not, no big deal. It's just um, one of those things. Kind of neat, but also, you know, very, very secondary in the grand scheme of things. So love you so much. Um, hope you've enjoyed everything we've, we've been doing this week. Hope you enjoyed the interview with Charles and we'll have uh, a heck of a lot more as the days go by. We love you and we'll talk to you after Arsenal Temple. Chapman, welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.